Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9, through chapter 52, verse 12. Isaiah 51, 9 through 52, 12. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack in front of you, that is on page 778, 778. The words are also provided for you in your bulletin. So whichever way you want to go, I just encourage you to have it open in front of you uh, as we get to work in God's Word. If you're new to the Bible uh, and you're scrolling through it and trying to get your bearings, uh, the larger numbers are chapter numbers and the smaller numbers are verse numbers. So when we say Isaiah chapter 51, you'd be a large 51 uh, somewhere in there. And then verse 9, you'll see a smaller verse 9. And it is at that point that we will... Uh, dive in to God's Word. So Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9 through chapter 52, verse 12. It's our regular pattern, our regular part of our life together as a church to uh, just make our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, we, we believe that all of God's Word is inspired and is given to us for our good and our growth and our health and our even our life as Christians. And so it is a normal pattern for us Uh, to just make our way through books of the Bible. And we're going through the book of Isaiah right now. So I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people." Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. 
Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck. O captive daughter of Zion, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrians them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns the voice of your watchmen they lift up their voice together they sing for joy for eye to eye they see the return of the lord to zion break forth together into singing you waste places of jerusalem for the lord has comforted his people he has redeemed jerusalem the lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Would you pray with me? God, as we now dive into your word, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see that which you would have us to see. May words on these pages spring forward and grab hold of us and refuse to let go. Awaken us to see the glories of this Christ that we celebrate. This Christ who has purchased our redemption in His cross. And who is the promise of our eternal life. And who is the resurrected one who reigns over us and who will bring us safely to himself. It is in him that we pray. It is by him that we hope. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. 
We had the sunrise service at the lighthouse this morning, 6 a.m., 40 degrees with a nice steady wind. Surprised I didn't see more of you there. There were a lot of kids and teenagers there who, based upon my own life experiences, I assumed they were not there of their own will. That was a decision that came down from above. If they had their way, they would be back in bed. Bed, where it's nice, it's warm, it's cozy, you can close your eyes, you can check out. My alarm went off at an obscenely early hour this morning, and I am looking forward to the bed this afternoon. Sleep is a wonderful gift, is it not? How many of us doesn't, don't enjoy a good night of sleep? A nice long afternoon nap. It's a great gift until it is wrongly used. It's great when you fall asleep on the airplane ride. It's not so great when your pilot is the one that falls asleep on the airplane. A number of years ago, I was jet lagged having just arrived in a city in Asia. And believe it or not, six foot three Stephen doesn't actually sleep very well on airplanes. So I get in a cab after having been awake for like 30, 34 hours at this point, and I'm taking a cab to a friend's apartment, and as we're driving to the apartment, he starts to kind of veer and swerve all over the road, and so I start trying to talk to him, and another friend that's in the cab with us starts to talk, and we realize this cab driver is on the very end of a 24-hour shift, and he is falling asleep at the wheel. All of a sudden, I wasn't so tired. I started to try to talk to him in a particularly loud voice to keep him awake that we might reach our destination safely. It's nice to sleep. It's not so nice when the ones who are supposed to be in control, who are supposed to protect us, who are supposed to keep us safe, it's not so nice when they are asleep. And there are times when you wonder, is God asleep? There are times where you look around and you say, I don't think God is paying as close of attention as he should be. Well, this morning, what I want to hold out for you, what I believe this text is causing us to see, is that when we wonder if God is asleep, we must wake up and live in the miracle of the gospel. Let me say that again. When we wonder, when you wonder, when I wonder if God is asleep, wake up and live in the miracle of the gospel. Now, that word gospel, okay, what does that mean? It's a word you hear about in church, but you might be unsure what that means. Just think of it basically like this, and we're going to see it throughout our text today. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign of Jesus Christ the powerful rule of Christ over me, and the wonder by which my life united with Him. The wonder and the promise and the blessings that I can have in Him. We've got to live in that miracle of all that Christ has done. So we're going to see this in four parts. We'll make our way through them quickly. We'll make our way through them carefully. First, in chapter 51, verses 9 through 16, why we think God is asleep. 
Why we think God is asleep. There is a great danger that the Christian must be constantly vigilant about. This is a danger that threatens to derail your faith and drive you perhaps even into the gutter of despair. What is this danger that we must be vigilantly on guard against? It is that for Christians believing that perhaps our best days are behind us. It's the danger of believing that God is no longer capable of carrying us. Sure, He can help us when the waters are calm, but when they get choppy, when the storm starts to rage and waters are lapping over the edge of the boat, we believe He has fallen asleep down below and we are on our own. This was the plight of the people of Judah, who was the audience to which Isaiah was written. For those of you that have been with us during our study of Isaiah, you know that it was written to a people whose faith had gone sideways. They were in captivity in this larger nation, Babylon. It was a superpower that was a neighbor of theirs. And they had begun to believe that their best days were in their rearview mirror. And their God was small. Their faith was one of past victories, but present insignificance. Maybe that's how you think of the Christian faith today. One of past triumphs, but present insignificance. They had empty talk of God. Sure, they spoke of Him reverently and in hushed tones. And maybe they talked about how they hoped in Him. But they believed He had gone to sleep and His power was relegated simply to stories of old. Things they had heard in Sunday school classes long ago. Look at them in verse 9 of chapter 51. Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. The generations long ago. The the people of God are telling God, hey, we really need you to wake up right now. Then you get some colorful language about past work he had done. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away and for the redeemed to pass over? So they're referencing the events of the Exodus. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus uh, from Egypt, where the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt, and they crossed through the Red Sea, which God parted, and they crossed through on dry ground. They needed God to dry up this sea, to make a way through the waters for the rescue of His people again. And they're wondering, they're sitting here wondering, could God still do this? This is a significant charge that is being made against God to allege that he is asleep at the wheel. And frankly, why wouldn't Judah wonder this? They'd been going on decades and decades and decades in captivity. Life had had lost so much of its zest, so much of its, its, its joy. They looked around and saw evil and hardship that ran that, that would run rampant in the world around them. And they even tell God in verse 11, if He'll work to their rescue, I will praise you with great gladness and I, if you will only do something. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Have you ever made one of those deals with God? If only you will do this, God, this thing I really need you to do, if only you will do that, then I will... You can fill in the blank. Look at how God responds to Judah in verses 12 and 13. This is critical for us to understand. He says in verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. 
Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Do you see this response of God? Look at that. He tells Judah it is not him who has fallen asleep. They have. They've lost their bearings. They're crying out for mercy, but they have forgotten the Lord. How has this happened? They're praying to God. You see that. Verse 9, they're crying out, wake up, God, wake up. And he says in verse 13, you have forgotten the Lord, your maker. How have they forgotten him? I think the answer is at the beginning of verse 12. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. See, the people of Judah, they longed for, they yearned for, they needed God's power to be at work within them. But they had walked away from God's presence. He had become a transactional being. We do our worship services, we do our sacrifices, we talk of you, we celebrate our our major holidays, and God, you hold up your end of the bargain. But now they aren't seeing that power. They're telling him to wake up and he responds, you don't need my power like I give it out to you and your problems are fixed. You need my presence to be with you. And let me submit before all of us today. God loses his touch, his appeal, his his beauty before us. When all we wanted is his power and care little for his presence. Do you want God to be the one whom your heart is set upon and whom you find infinitely, gloriously beautiful above all else? Captivating to the point that your heart cannot get enough of him? Or do you just want a genie in a bottle who will answer the wishes that you have? This is a question before Judah and it's a question before all of us, myself included. See, one thing that we see in this encounter is that when you draw near to the presence of God, when you draw near to him, he's a consuming fire. When you draw near to him, you cannot help but be warmed in his presence. And you actually begin to understand yourself in a better manner than you have in a long time, maybe even ever. So here's as Judah says to God, wake up, wake up. God responds by reminding them of who he is. I am, I am he who comforts you. And he tells him in verses 14 and 15, verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. That's Judah. You're bowed down now, but I will make sure you are released. And then verse 15, I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. So the gauntlet is laid down here. If we are going to have the presence of God, we don't come before him asking him questions and putting him on trial. But what Judah is going to realize is that to come near to God is to allow him to ask questions of us and ask us to examine not him alone, but examine ourselves as well. 
So let's look in verses 17 to 23. They have charged God with being asleep. Now, secondly, we see why God tells us that we are asleep. Verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Pause here. This is a sobering, difficult word. I want us all to be understanding of what is happening here. God is telling Judah that they are in this captivity, this Babylonian captivity, because they have spiritually fallen asleep. They have drifted away from him. And get this, the affliction that they have received from Babylon is ultimately judgment from the hand of God. God is not a a babysitter who is sitting off to the side text messaging and scrolling around on her social media while the children are playing and he's lost sight of what's going on. No, he is a judge who has rendered a verdict against Judah and she has been serving her sentence, but she up to this point has been too drunk to realize it. Now, doesn't this passage just scream out happy Easter? It's at this point where I would like to wish you, I hope you have a very joyful lunch with your loved ones. And if you're going to be doing any Easter egg hunts, I hope those are joyful and fruitful. And may you have a wonderful Easter holiday. In all seriousness, if you're going to find a place in this passage to say, okay, there it is. There it is, Stephen. That's the place where I can't get on board with Christianity. Or at least with the Christianity I'm seeing here. I could buy it if God promised to help people and promised to make this world a better place. But this, this, this actively disciplining, this actively inflicting the pains of judgment upon his people, that is simply a bridge too far, not for me. And I think it's kind of weird that the rest of you believe this stuff. I've been in that boat before. There are probably others in this room that have been in that boat before as well. That boat of skepticism, of doubt, of, "Mm, I don't know about that God. But here's what we have to understand about the God of the Bible and about ourselves. The God of the Bible is not a good luck charm. He's not a cosmic grandpa who we scoot onto his lap and tell him what went well today and what didn't and what boo-boos we need him to kiss. The God of the Bible welcomes us to come to Him. He welcomes us to lay our souls, our lives before Him and find that He doesn't simply bandage us up, but He makes us new. And what we find here is that what He desires of His people is He desires honesty with His people. He desires honesty with you, with me. He does not say to you to come to him that you have to have everything buttoned up. You have to have everything cleaned up. You have to have no marks, no blemishes on your spiritual resume. You are welcome to bring everything before him. But all that he demands of us is our honesty and our reckoning with what he has to say. In fact, he doesn't tell us that he's sorry about what we're going through. He goes one further. He actually comes to us and promises to dwell within us and to be with us. But this life-giving, God-indwelling work is not something that comes to us half-heartedly. Think of it. God who created all. God who rules over all. God who gives His life 
to you and to me and to whom all of history is marching towards. The God who has numbered the hairs on our head, the God who puts breath in our lungs, the God who has done all of this is not one that we may casually approach if we are feeling like it. See, what was happening with Judah is that they spoke of their relationship with God. They did their religious habits, their customs, etc., but their hearts were far from God. There were people marked by corruption, marked by evil, marked by abuse, marked by mistreatment. So God did not push them away, but he disciplined them for the sake of their purification and for their healing. And what we read here is them waking up to the fact that this is what is happening. And as I studied this passage this week, I was struck by the times in my life where God has graciously woken me up to the Sin of my own life. That's what it's called. It's sin. It's rebellion against Him. Maybe where I talk a good game. Maybe where I show up in church every Sunday. And yet my heart is far from Him. Why is God so insistent on doing this work in His people? He does this because He refuses to allow our best days to be behind us. Look at how he transforms his people. He opens their eyes to their need for dramatic transformation. And he acts in perfect justice. Make no mistake, the Babylonian captivity for Judah was horrific. And God saw it. Now that Judah has been awakened, look at what he promises in verses 21 to 23. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. For dramatic the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more, and I will put and he it acts into in perfect the hand justice. Of your Make no mistake, the Babylonian captivity for Judah down, was horrific, and God over. saw it. Now that Judah has been awakened, you have made your back like the ground, and like the street for them to pass over. God says to Judah, He's going to transfer the cup of His wrath from Bab- from Judah to Babylon. And now let us drill down to the heart of Christianity. Tune in on this with me. Tune in on this with me. If you don't know what, quite what to make sure of this God, let's think about this. We see the word wrath mentioned three times in this section. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 22. This wrath is mentioned in line with this cup of God's wrath. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with this in your New Testament, where do we hear this language spoken of elsewhere? If you were to go look at the Gospels, You would find Jesus repeatedly speaking of his going to drink the cup of God's wrath as he set his face and his life towards the cross that he would bear. In fact, a good exercise for you might be to make note of and go later this afternoon or this evening to go read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26 and 27 and follow along as you read the Passion narrative, but particularly make note of the times Jesus mentions drinking the cup that God has prepared for him. It was on this cross that Jesus willingly endured the just wrath of God upon sin. And the offer of God's grace is for you and I to come to him through Jesus's cross. Because we are ones who deserve his wrath for our sins. But through the cross, we find that Jesus Christ himself has borne that wrath. You might be familiar with the fact that Jesus died on the cross. You might be familiar with the fact that he was resurrected. And yet you haven't quite seen before 
or you haven't quite grasped before, or you've just been casual to, or even asleep to, the fact that this is the most dramatic thing that has not only happened in the world, but the most dramatic thing that question that you could answer in your life, what will I make of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? And yet here we are in this obscure part of the book of Isaiah, and maybe it is here that God has woken you up. If so, if you think there's something to this, or even if you just have more questions, even if you have more objections, saying, all right, Stephen, I see what you're saying here, but I'm still struggling with this. I encourage you, there is not a more important question that you could wrestle over in the course of your whole life. And I would love to speak with you, even just introductorily, briefly, after our service. Or find my email on our bulletin and shoot me an email. I would love to talk with you about it. And try to answer more questions about the claims of Christ, the claims of Christianity. Not just their truthfulness, but their truthfulness and what they mean for the significance for your life and for mine. You'll be tempted to get out of here and to go home and to start going about the rest of your day, the rest of your week, and be lulled back to sleep to these spiritually important matters. Do not fall asleep, but pursue answers to this. And I would love to speak with you as you do. Now, we talk of the cross, we talk of Jesus, and we talk of his death, and we talk of all these things. And I want to pause and note something here. We need to get a little heady. We need to think a little bit. This is weighty stuff, and there's a danger as we talk of wrath and the cross that we get some things mixed up in regards to our understanding of God the Father and God the Son, and we have to be sound. We have to be right on this stuff. It's of supreme importance. Christy Thornton, a theologian, writes of the cross, and maybe you've been in this boat before, before I read this, You've maybe been in this boat before where you've thought of, okay, Jesus died. That was a great act of love for us. But God the Father sent God the Father, like, like, that was angry. That was wrathful. That was, I don't know if I want that one. Can I have Jesus? But not that one. What, What do I make of this? Well, listen to this. Often when we tell the story of the cross in our songs and in our sermons, we tell of the Father who wills to pour out His wrath on the obedient Son. That's sort of true. But the righteous judgment at the cross is from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When we get that wrong and locate wrath in the person of the Father instead of the Godhead, it corrupts our perception of God. Now we have a loving Son whose love we see poured out on the cross and a Father full of wrath hidden in the background which can shape us against our better judgment to love the son who loves us, but to fear his father whose wrath is skulking somewhere behind him. Christians cling then to the hope that Jesus' substitute death protects them from his loving but wrathful father. Couple this with fears related to human fathers and we're in a pickle. Like a Trinitarian good parent, bad parent kind of thing. The Son nurtures and bears with us in our weakness, but we're just waiting till Father gets home to take our lumps. This Trinitarian misstep can riddle us with insecurity. But that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is the story of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who demonstrates His righteousness and love through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does this mean for how we understand the Father and Son at the cross? Headed to Calvary, Jesus taught, whoever has seen me has seen the Father in John 14, 9. He isn't an emissary telling of a father far away. 
Jesus is God revealing himself. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. As a result, at the cross, when we look at the Son lifted high and we see his blood poured out, he demonstrates the love of the Trinity, not just the Son, and the righteous wrath of the Trinity, not just the Father. There is no dichotomy of a loving son and wrathful father. There is no father lurking in righteous anger behind the back of Jesus. And so there's no need for fear and insecurity in the deep recesses of our hearts. In Christ, we can rest our hearts in the bosom of the father. When we get the Trinity and Christology or the study of Christ wrong in our gospel, our view of the Christian life goes away. But when we get it right, we marvel at who God is. What he has done in Christ. And we can rest in him. The cross is where we are called. To wake up. And see the love of God. For us. We don't just wake up. And the cross and the promise of the gospel. They lift us up as we see in chapter 52 verses 1 to 10. We are engaged in this inner battle. Will we believe that our best days are ahead or they are behind? Does our faith have vibrancy and life? Is it like flowers bursting forth in the spring after a dark and dreary winter? Or is this Christian faith nothing more than an outdated relic being swallowed up by time? Perhaps archaeologists and historians will one day find this old religion that people believed but is left to the history books and is of little import in their day. A manageable, comfortable, on its last legs, low cost, low expectation faith is not what you get when the Son of God has died and He has burst forth from the grave. You get a world turned upside down as the message of Christ transforms our hearts and gives life to dead souls. Look at the crucified Jesus and then read how he gives life to his people who believe they are dead. In chapter 52, verses 1 and 2, God promises to turn his his wrath away from Judah. And then he says to them, he now talks to them and says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. He says to them, you think I'm asleep and I need to wake up, but you are the ones who need to wake up. I have thrown the gates open wide and invite you to travel home. The road of desperate agony is now, has been now turned into a road of gentle mercy. The road of being dragged along by the Babylonians is now a road of grace with the arms of the love of God opened wide for you to come to Him. The precious memories of your youth, the days of peaceful calm, rich laughter, youthful innocence that have faded into nothing but memories will be awakened with the perfect presence of God and the sublime joy of returning home to His presence. In His death, Jesus Christ has brought about the death of death. And He invites us to wake up and recognize the splendors and the life everlasting and the answers to the deepest yearnings of our hearts and find that they are all answered in knowing Him. 
Now, lest we think that God is detached from understanding the hardship of obedience to him. He knows that we live in this state where we have these promises of the gospel, but they are not yet fully enjoyed while we are in this life, in this world. We get little samples, we get little nibbles, we get little tastes, but we await the feast that we will enjoy in the presence of Christ. He calls us to get dressed, to walk, but know that we are on a journey to Zion. And he alludes to this in verses 3 through 6. We deal with hearts that don't quite trust. We deal with hypocrisy as we look ourselves in the mirror. We deal with our sin that we want to forsake and abandon. But the truth is, the more we grow in grace, the more we realize that we have more and more sin that we must grow out of. What is our comfort? Where do we turn when we don't worry? uh, When we don't worry if God is awake or not, but we worry if we will be able to get out of the bed that day. The Christian life seems hard. It's a narrow road. Where do I find the strength to live, to hope, to trust in God? You might say, I want to believe in Christ crucified for me, but how do I live in light of it? What do I do with my life in response to it? What do I do with all that weighs me down, that shackles me down to this earth? Verse 7 answers it for us. We look out, we squint, we yearn for something to give us optimism. And what do we see? We see a runner, we see someone running back to us, bringing good news, bringing a message from a faraway land. A message not just of God's love for us in the cross, but of God's conquest over the enemies of sin and death and hopelessness and despair in the resurrection. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Think about this. It is one courier running home with a message. It is not a force or it's not a group of soldiers returning home defeated in battle, having left their dead on the battlefield. This is a courier coming home saying, all that you hoped would be true in Christ, it is. All that is bad and evil, it will be undone. Every fear, every loss, every grief, every sorrow for the Christian One day our obituaries will be erased and they will be fake news because we will be more alive than we have ever been before. And why is this? Because not only did Christ die, but He was resurrected. Listen to the joy spread to those who see this courier come back with this news. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Look at them, they're looking around saying, is this really true? For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All that is good and lovely will come together in perfect fulfillment in the resurrected Jesus and in His presence forevermore. All the deepest reaches of your heart have wanted to be true. Everything you have wanted to be right. Everything you have yearned that would be turned from evil to good and would be right and true. It is all fulfilled in this resurrected King. And my friend, there is nothing 
about you that excludes you from coming to know this resurrected King. The one thing He insists of us is that we don't put Him on trial alone, but that He puts us on trial. And when the verdict is cast over us, He looks at us and says, let me pay the penalty for that sin. And then He comes to us and after having suffered on the cross for your sins and for mine, He comes to us and says, I have been risen, I am resurrected, and I invite you to come to Me and live. You might be realizing today that you've been alive for years, decades, maybe many, many decades, And though you have been alive, you have never truly been alive. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to you and says, wake up, look to me and live. Part of our church family, part of our journeying to Zion is telling people of this resurrected Jesus as we go. We invite people who are bound and being carried away to Babylon to be freed of the shackles of their sin through the cross of Christ and to turn around and walk towards this eternal Zion, this home where we'll be in His presence forevermore. So as heralds, we run back towards Babylon proclaiming that Jesus Christ has proven triumphant and we can turn and look to Him. And in Him we don't just wake up, but we live. And lastly, as we conclude verses 11 and 12, we don't just live but we walk in obedience to Him. Are your best days ahead of you or are they behind you as a Christian? Do you feel stuck? Perhaps you feel afraid to admit that you worry they may be behind you. You feel as if you might be in that spiritual blaze. The risen Christ, the one whose resurrection we celebrate today, He walks, He calls us to walk forward in Him. And He tells us that He will be your strength. You can leave this Babylon you are in and walk forward. He says in verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Recommit yourself to walking in holiness, to trusting the Word of God as your course and direction for life. And walk forward as this holy profession, procession, lifting high the name of Christ, being so captivated by the cross and the empty tomb that these are not intellectual truths that you simply assent to, but these are facts that grip your heart and refuse to let you go. You're going to feel this when you bear your heart before Him. Not when you tell Him that you need Him to wake up and fix things, but whenever He tells you you need to wake up and come to Him and live. He says in verse 12, You shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Echoing the story of the people of Israel fleeing Egypt after the plagues. He tells them they will not have to go in haste or have to take flight in the middle of the night. The Lord travels ahead of them and behind them. Across the resurrection they purchase our security no matter the reach of Babylon, no matter the vengeance that she might muster. Nothing can stop us in this journey towards our eternal Zion, the presence of Christ truth of the matter is, when you and I, when we cry out to God and want Him to wake up, we're trying to put Christ back in the tomb. But when we allow Him to tell us to wake up, 
our hearts explode in wonder in seeing the miracle of the gospel. Christ crucified. Christ resurrected. Christ who will return for his church one day. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are our hope. It is in Jesus Christ that we take refuge. He who conquered and defeated our sin, conquered, defeated all that Satan could throw at him, that we might live everlasting in him. It is in him that we hope and we live. It is by him that we move. Through him, we walk knowing that we are secure in you. We pray all of this in His name. Amen.